We are returning to the book of Mark. And uh, before we begin, I'll address the obvious question um, because I've been asked many times what happened. Um, I bought a new shoe um, to try and, you know, be a little more cool. Pumps up. You remember those? Uh, I got a stress fracture in my leg from um, apparently being too stubborn. And when when you exercise and you have pain, you should probably stop. And I decided not to. And after some x-rays, they said, you have to wear this thing for about three, four weeks. Um, and you know how I've been, you know, just been very truthful with you guys, transparent about subconscious things, you know, thoughts going through. I've never worn shorts while preaching. I tried putting on jeans this morning because they told me you might be able to pull it over. I couldn't get my skinny jean leg over the... I'd be more embarrassed if you actually believed I own a pair of skinny jeans. So, yes, Travis, I'm calling you out. Uh, we are continuing through the book of Mark. Uh, we are resuming, and, and what a wonderful uh, subject matter for Family Sunday, the beheading of John. Um, so if you would, open your copy of Mark chapter 6. We're going to look at verses uh, 14 through 29. Mark chapter 6. And if you would, once you've turned there, stand with me. Uh, we're going to start at verse 14, and we're going to read through verse 29. So, starting at Mark chapter 6, starting at verse 14, it says, <clears throat> King Herod heard of it, for Jesus' name had become known. Some said John the Baptist has been raised from the dead. That is why these miraculous powers are at work in him. But others said he is Elijah, and others said, he is a prophet like one of the prophets of old. But when Herod heard of it, he said, John, whom I beheaded, has been raised. For it was Herod who had sent and seized John and bound him in prison for the sake of Herodias, his brother Philip's wife. Because he had married her, for John had been saying to Herod, it is not lawful for you to have your brother's wife. And Herodias had a grudge against him and wanted to put him to death, but she could not. For Herod feared John, knowing that he was a righteous and holy man, and he kept him safe. When he heard him, he was greatly perplexed, and yet he heard him gladly. But an opportunity came when Herod on his birthday gave a banquet for his nobles and military commanders and the leading men of Galilee. For when Herodias' daughter came in and danced, she pleased Herod and his guests. And the king said to the girl, ask me for whatever you wish, and I will give it to you. And he vowed to her, whatever you ask me, I will give you up to half of my kingdom. And she went out and said to her mother, for what should I ask? And she said, the head of John the Baptist. And she came in immediately with haste to the king and asked, saying, I want you to give me at once the head of John the Baptist on a platter. And the king was exceedingly sorry. But because of his oath and his guests, he did not want to break his word to her. And immediately the king sent an executioner with orders to bring John's head. He went and beheaded him in the prison and brought his head on a platter and gave it to the girl. And the girl gave it to her mother. When his disciples heard of it, they came and took his body and laid it in a tomb. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for what seems at times to be difficult stories because they speak truth to us. So Father, I pray that you would... Uh, exhort us this morning into a deeper relationship with you. Would you encourage us? Would you bless us? Would your name be lifted high through your word, we pray in Jesus' precious name. 
Amen. Please be seated. It's kind of an odd placement of the story we have in the book of Mark, a narrative that has continued on throughout the entire time, a narrative of the story of Jesus, and specifically about Jesus as King. And so the story is continually point to the fact that Jesus is King. And we have in this chapter, we talked a number of weeks ago, if you can stretch your minds back about a month ago to where we left off. We had left off with Jesus uh, gathering His disciples and then sending them out uh, two by two to, to proclaim the message. And, and the, the, the story that we're looking at today starts with they have come back and you have this incredible excitement, right? Imagine the excitement of the disciples as they went out and, and, and you read what they did in, in, in verse 13. It says, they cast out many demons and anointed with oil. Many were sick and healed them. They were carrying a message of hope. The king is here. And they were casting out demons and they were healing the sick. And, and, and all these incredible things. You can imagine this great revival happening and how exciting it would have been. In fact, we're told at the beginning of our, our passage that it says King Herod heard of it, and this is our purpose in life, is it not, guys? Right here. For Jesus' name was being made known. That's our goal in life as followers of Christ, to make the name of Jesus known. And so the mission of the gospel was happening. An incredible moment. Jesus' name is being made known. Even the secular political leaders are hearing about Jesus. And they're hearing that He's this amazing, miraculous man who is doing all these incredible things. And His disciples, His followers are doing incredible things. The message of hope is going out. The King of Kings is here. This incredible thing. And then all of a sudden, this oddly placed story in the midst of all this excitement, tragedy. Tragedy. John, the forerunner, the one who actually proclaimed, Behold, the Lamb of God to Jesus, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world, the one who was to prepare the way for the coming Messiah, the one who was heralding in the new kingdom. The one which we will look at in a little bit is declared by Jesus in Matthew chapter 11 as the greatest man born among women. The greatest human being ever born declared by Jesus. After all the excitement, in the midst of all the excitement, beheaded. Wow! What a pause in this narrative. We want to look at this narrative. I want, to, I want to kind of walk through this narrative with you. I want to kind of give you some insight into the historical context, give you some insight of what's going on. Um, uh, I don't have my typical three points until our application, but, but let's just walk through the story. It says in verse 14, King Herod heard of it for Jesus' name. What did he heard of, by the way? He had heard of the casting out of many demons and the anointing with oil many who were sick and them being healed. He heard of this uproar that's going on and, and all the people are stirred up. Some are saying uh, it's John the Baptist raised from the dead. Um, you're saying, well, wait a minute. John hasn't been killed yet. Yes, he has. This is, this is present day and we're about to have a, a flashback, okay? 
So keep that in mind. So they're saying some said that John the Baptist had been raised from the dead. That is why these miraculous powers are at work in him. There was a superstition in those days that if a person uh, was doing something incredible, uh, specifically they believed that there were people doing miraculous things, that it must have been somebody who had died and been raised from the dead because they had a new power. Okay, and so that's why they're saying it must be John the Baptist or one of the prophets or someone from old that has raised from the dead. That's what's going on. That's their, their view of what's going on with all these miraculous things. And Herod says, when he heard of it, John, whom I beheaded, has been raised. Herod hears about this excitement and all of this and all the people saying all these things. And I want you to understand there is a guilt-stricken conscience that's going on here. The Greek tells us in the original language that he was saying it over and over again. He was repeating it. This is Herod whom I killed. This is, notice he says, I beheaded. This is Herod raised in the back. He's come back to get me. This is the thoughts that are going through Herod's mind, and we'll look a little bit more into the relationship that Herod had, but, but he's, he's guilt-stricken, he feels responsible, he must have thought John was coming back for his position and his title. And I think it's important for us to walk through a little bit of Herod, okay, to give some context, and, and this could be super confusing, so you're going to have to really gird the loins of your mind together, tighten that belt up and, and, and walk through, because the family tree of Herod is a little confusing, all right? So we read about a lot of different Herods in the Bible, in the New Testament. Um, there's Herod the Great, who was on the scene at Jesus' birth. If you remember Herod the Great, he had all the babies, the, the males up to age, I think, two or three, uh, put to death. And he was very, uh, very uh, uh, paranoid. And that's part of Herod's history. Herod the Great, this, this family line of Herod, he's kind of the patriarch. This is tabloid stuff, all right? Herod had um, somewhere between... Nine to ten wives, we don't know all of them because they're not all recorded. Uh, he had at least 14 children, uh, many of which he put to death for fear that they were trying to take over his reign. He was Herod the Great, self-proclaimed the Great. He was about four foot ten, so uh, I think he had an inferiority complex, but he wanted everybody to know he was great. He built all kinds of, because of his paranoia, he built all kinds of palaces and fortresses. He built the fortress at Masada. Uh, he built the fortress and the palace at Machaerus, which is where this story takes place, uh, just across the Dead Sea in what is now present-day Jordan. Machaerus is this uh, incredible place. Um, but he always built these things to guard himself, to protect himself. He was called King Herod. It was a title given to him by the Roman Senate. He was an Idumean, which also is an Edomite. And maybe that sounds familiar to you. Edomites come from the line of Esau. And that is a very important point. Because you'll trace throughout the history of the word. And there is a constant battle between the seed of the woman, which would be fulfilled in Jesus Christ, and the seed of the serpent. From Genesis chapter 2, verse 15, we read about this enmity, this battle that would rage on. And there is always throughout Scripture these two lines in the Esau and Jacob 
trace back to those two lines, those family lines, and the Edomites would trace back. And so you have to understand this and put this in perspective that there's always a battle between Satan and Jesus, and it's prophesied from the very beginning in Genesis. He's the paranoid king. In fact, Caesar once said, because he killed so many of his sons, that it would be better to be a pig in Herod's court because he's a half-Jew and he would never kill a pig to eat it versus being a son in Herod's court. Nice guy. Nice guy. One of his sons was a man named Philip. Philip lived in Rome with his wife Herodias. You're saying, where is all this going? I don't like history. I love history, okay? And I think it's really good to, to put it in context and it will help, hopefully. Philip lived in Rome with his wife Herodias, who also happened to actually be his stepniece. Yay! I'm telling you, this gets really weird. Another son by another wife was a guy by the name of Antipas, also known as Herod Antipas, and that is the Herod in our story, all right? So you've got a half-brother by one wife named Philip. There's a whole bunch of other brothers. Some were executed. Some are names you'd be familiar with. There are all kinds of, of uh, 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 descendants from this line. Maybe you hear about Herod who died eaten by worms. That's another, uh, uh, basically a grandson of Herod the Great. Uh, his name was actually Agrippa I, but a lot of these guys end up having the name Herod tied to them somehow or another. So Herod, Antipas is who we're focusing on here. And so Herod, Antipas, uh, what the story is about is about him coming to a point where he beheads John. Well, why does he behead John? I think we, we look at Herod Antipas, sometimes he's called Herod the Tetrarch, and all that means is when Herod the Great died, his, his reign, his kingdom was divided into four parts, and, and Tetrarch means fourth, and he marries a princess for political reasons from a neighboring kingdom. And that brings us to our present part of the story. He goes to Rome to visit his brother Philip, has an affair with Herodias, runs away from Rome with Herodias, comes back to Galilee, and his current wife isn't too happy about the situation. She divorces him, he remarries Herodias. John the Baptist sees all of this and says, you have violated God's holy law. And that's where the story comes present. Along with Herodias, they, uh, Herod brings back a daughter from Philip and Herodias. Her name, we're told by Josephus, is Salome. And she will be an important part of the story as well. So John the Baptist hears about this. He comes and at Herod's, at, uh, Herod's wife Herodias' beckoning, Herod arrests John the Baptist. And so it says, uh, it is John the Baptist whom I beheaded. He has raised from the dead. And then we get this four, which is the backstory. Okay, so everything up to verse 17 is present day, and all of a sudden, verse 17, we're going to get a, uh, 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 what do they call it, a, a flashback. You guys love good flashbacks in movies because it's easy to keep them straight. 
For it was Herod who had sent and seized John and bound him in prison. Why? For the sake of Herodias. I keep losing my place. Uh, his brother Philip's wife, because he had married her. For John had been saying to Herod, it is not lawful for you to have your brother's wife. And Herodias had a grudge against him and wanted to put him to death. Herodias was so enraged by what had happened that she wants him dead. You know that you've caused a rift when a woman wants you dead. It's a pretty big deal. She wants him dead, and if you notice what the text says, uh, she goes and she encourages her husband. Her husband listens. He brings him into Machaerus, this palace fortress that they're at, and they throw him in prison. And it's just a fascinating uh, set of events. But she wants him dead, and you'll notice what the text says. It's really neat. It's, in, it's, it's fascinating to me. It says, John had been saying, uh, it is not lawful for you to have your brother's wife. She has a grudge. Um, and she wants him to be put to death, but she could not. Why? Herod feared John, knowing that he was a righteous and holy man, and he kept him safe. And then it says that from time to time he would bring uh, John the Baptist up from this prison and he would listen to him. He would have him share his story, share what's going on. And, and it's, it's fascinating to me that what it says, it says that uh, uh, he, first of all, uh, was afraid of John. He kept him safe. And, and I think there's a couple of reasons why he kept him safe. He kept him safe because he was afraid of the people. Remember, he inherited his father's paranoia. He was afraid of the people, and the people all recognized that John the Baptist was a prophet. And not only that, but it says, uh, that, I mean, we can, we can look in history and realize that he was really a puppet of Rome. He, he wasn't a king. He, he had no right and no rule, and so like Pilate, who later on would try Jesus, he didn't want to stir up a riot because he would be removed from his place. And so he just kind of kept him in the lowdown, kept him away. And, and every once in a while, he would bring him up, and Herod recognized him. What a testimony from, a, from, from the word that Herod saw John as righteous and holy. That's an incredible testimony if you pause and think about it. That this secular man who had no desire to have a relationship with God would see John as righteous, as blameless before the people. He saw and recognized that he was a holy man, that he, he uh, was set apart, he was distinct. What a testimony it would be for us. If the world saw us and said there is a righteous and holy person, upright. Herod recognized that. But not only that, he, I think, enjoyed him. I think Herod enjoyed John. Notice what it said. He says he, he, he would listen to him. And he was perplexed. He was puzzled. He didn't understand the things of God. He, he, he probably sat there and thought, hmm, that's interesting. I don't know. I can't explain that. But notice what it says. It pleased him to listen to him. 
I don't have this in my notes, but as I'm thinking through that, it's a fascinating thing. How oftentimes as Christians, we go out and begin to speak to the world about the truth and call to conviction, sin. And I wonder if in our doing so, it would please people to listen to us. That speaks volumes about how he treated people. That he could speak truth bluntly, boldly, and with power and courage. Yet it pleased Herod to listen to him. How many times have we heard that Christians have become a blight or a stigma because all we do is pound people the word of God and where their sin and their convictions are without grace and mercy. And yet to be able to speak boldly and and believe me, John was, I believe, very bold. He was thrown in prison for telling the, the, the political leader of his territory that he was living in sin. And yet, Herod still gladly listened to him. The text continues. She's been trying. Here's her plot. Herodias' vendetta. She wants to put him to death. Her husband is protecting him. He's actually enjoying him. I bet that irked her even more. And then we get this little phrase. Verse 21, but an opportunity came. Opportunity for what? It's an opportunity for Herodias' vengeance. She found an opportunity and she was going to take advantage of it. This is the reality of sin, brothers and sisters. Sin, as Romans 7, 8 tells us, is waiting to seize the opportunity. In Genesis chapter 4, God speaks to Cain, and He says to him, Cain, if you do what's right, why are you worried? Why are you fretting? If you do what is right, you're fine, but know this, sin lies at the door, waiting. I don't know about you, but I'm guessing this is the truth, that sin is always waiting to seize the opportunity. I can't tell you how many times in my life that it seems like I get rattled from something and then in walks opportunity. Every time. See, a lot of times we blame Satan for all kinds of things. Satan made me do it. Satan, made, Satan doesn't make anyone do anything. He doesn't have that kind of power. The reality is Satan's greatest tactic, his greatest tool, is he is the ultimate matchmaker. Satan finds our greatest weakness and he finds and provides opportunity and we do the rest. That's the reality of sin is that it's always waiting, it's always lurking and Satan knows our weaknesses and he's constantly putting out opportunity after opportunity. Oh, no one's around. Nobody's going to see this. Opportunity. Well, here comes an opportunity and what is that opportunity? Her husband's birthday and what a birthday bash right there's a lot not implied in the text but should be it says that an opportunity came when Herod on his birthday gave a banquet all the leading men from that area would have been there his nobles his military commanders the leading men of Galilee Normally, the party would have, after all the men have gotten drunk and, and um, uh, gotten to a place, they would close the party off with these 
sensual dancers. This is Roman tradition. This is what they would do. But Herodias said, I got an idea. I'm going to cancel the dancers. I'm going to have my daughter go out. I'm telling you, this family line is despicable. She dances before a bunch of drunk old men to arouse them. How depraved must you be? How vengeance-filled must you be to expose your daughter in such a way? That should give you a glimpse into the heart of this woman. So filled with rage and hatred that she would expose her daughter. Another side application, brothers and sisters, fathers and mothers, we are called to guard our children. Called to guard them. Never fun conversations, but we should be guarding our children to walk in modesty and purity. To have those conversations as a father to his daughter, that's not fun. But it's necessary. I do those things not because uh, I, I, I know what's in their heart, but because I know what's in the heart of men. And she fully knew she had lived the debauched life and she fully knew what she was doing and she sends her daughter out there. Uh, daughter pleases Herod and he makes a foolish promise to her, probably because he was boasting. He's going to say, hey, I've got this huge kingdom. Hey, girl, I'll give you up to half of my kingdom. The word he uses for, for daughter in this text is the exact same word we talked about a couple of weeks ago where Jairus said about his daughter, little, little daughter, my little girl, I'll give you up to half of the kingdom. What a foolish promise. It's probably boasting to the men. He's like, hey, I'm going to show everybody around here how much power and clout I have. I'll give you up to half of my kingdom. Probably done in a drunken stupor. Doesn't matter your stance on alcohol. Your stance on drunkenness should be made clear. That it leads to all kinds of things. Wine is a mocker, we're told in Proverbs. And there ought to be extreme caution when approaching such a subject. How many people die a year? I think it's like 500,000 due to alcohol-related deaths because of drunkenness. How many foolish decisions are made in those moments? Not only that, he didn't even have a kingdom to offer. He wasn't a king. But he makes this offer. Daughter runs back to mom, who's been orchestrating the whole thing. What should we ask for? What should we do? What, sh what you know, you, you heard him, what should we get? And mom says, now's the time. She says, go tell him you want John the Baptist's head on a platter. And she, the text says that she goes with haste. She didn't want the drunkenness to kind of wear off. This is the opportunity he just promised. He's in front of this whole audience that he's made this promise. Runs in and, and hurries up and, and, and tells Herod. Can you imagine the soberingness of that request? I want John the Baptist's head on a platter. There's no way he expected that. There's no way he thought her, his, his, this daughter, stepdaughter, would ever be interested in something like that. 
probably never crosses mind. And by the way, if you're ever at a birthday party and out comes a head on a platter, birthday party ruined. And you can imagine the soberingness of it. It says that when she went out, she said, I want you to give me the at once the head of John the Baptist on a platter. There's a lot of urgency in this. Her haste at once. Why? Because she didn't want him to take back his word. By the way, another side application. If somebody is rushing you into a decision, it's probably not a good one. Usually isn't. If you can't tell somebody when you go to buy an expensive thing, I need to pray about it, and they say, no, 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 this is a limited time offer, I'm telling you, walk away. Walk away. And notice what it says. It says, and the king was exceedingly sorry. Exceedingly sorry. What? What do you want? I think he was sorry for a number of things. I think he was sorry because at that moment he realized he had been duped by his wife. I think he was sorry because he had created a relationship with this man that he enjoyed listening to him. I think he was sorry because he knew that political unrest could come, that his kingdom was now in jeopardy, all because he had been duped. I think he was sorry because now this man who, who as Pilate had said, you take him, I'm washing my hands, he's innocent. I think Herod knew that John had done nothing wrong in his mind. He was convinced of that. He was doing all these things at the beckoning of his wife. Remember, he threw him in prison because of his wife. He was now going to execute him because of his wife. All these things. And I think at that moment, he realized he had been tricked and he was sorry. I don't think he was sorry. Repentance. I think he was sorry. I just got tricked. He was exceedingly sorry. And the text says, but. And in that moment... Herod stamped forever his place in history. But my pride, I've made this promise in front of all these guys. I can't give that up. But my pride, I have a reputation to uphold. And so he chooses to have John executed. cold reality of this event is just mind-blowing to me. It says, immediately the king sent an executioner with orders to John to bring John's head. He went and beheaded him in prison and brought his head on a platter and gave it to the girl, and the girl gave it to her mother. Immediately, there's no delay, the king sends the executioner, he went, he beheaded him, In prison, in eight simple and direct words comes the death of the one whom Jesus says is the greatest man ever born. In eight simple words. What an incredible thing when you pause and think about that. It was not just that he died, it was humiliating. He didn't even get out of prison for a public execution. He was executed in prison, and then the end of his life is this, that his head is brought on display on a platter before uh, this little girl who really had no desire for it, but it was all a plot to get revenge because her her mother was uh, scorned because of truth. 
And the text ends with this. When his disciples heard of it, they came and took his body and laid it in a tomb. End of story for the greatest man ever born. No pomp, no circumstance, no burial with with some sort of ceremony. It's just the end. Eight simple words. In came the, the, the executioner, executed him, the end. What a depressing story. Right? We start with the amazing testimonies of these disciples who went out on this journey. Can you imagine the excitement? Hey, Jesus, guess what we did? Well, we were in Nazareth. We did this incredible thing where we cast out all these demons. Hey, Jesus, when we were in Bethsaida, we, we, we were proclaiming the truth that you are the Messiah. And all these people came to believe. There's a huge revival, all these incredible things. And then all of a sudden we hear this story of the greatest prophet killed for speaking and doing what was right and true. There's one guy in this whole story who does what is right. One guy. And what does he get? The loss of his head. I mean, think about that. I read this story like five times before I even started working on the sermon. I got done with it, and the question that comes to my mind is this. Did the wicked just win? And that's what it seems like, right? The one guy who does what's right, the one guy who's described as righteous and holy, he's in prison and he's not even brought out to light. He's in prison. They come, they, they, they execute him, and end of story. This is political abuse, abuse of power. This is injustice. This is one man who says, I am king and I can do whatever I want. And he goes and he takes some other man, his brother, half-brother's wife. He says, this is going to be my wife. The wife who, who, who Herodias, who, who kills whoever she wants, she gets her way. All these things happening. And my question is, how do we walk away from this with any hope? I mean, what a... T- If I ended right now, what a terrible sermon. The wicked get away with murder, literally. How do we walk away from this with any hope? I think there's three things. First of all, it's a call to remember. Turn to Psalm chapter 73. Psalm chapter 73 is a chapter written by a guy by the name of Asaph. Asaph's someone that we probably don't know a ton about because there's not a lot written about him, but we do know actually quite a bit if we study the Word. He was one of the priestly family. He was actually the head of worship. He started his place with David, King David, the greatest king of Israel. He was there when David brought the ark in and, and into Kirjath-Jerim. I can't pronounce it. doesn't matter. It's a place. It was before the temple was built, so they built a tabernacle. He was there. He was a part of the worship. He was the head of the worship during this whole process. So he, would, he, was, he was there. He saw the incredibleness. He saw the glory and the failures of David, the king. He was there when, when David committed murder and adultery and, and, and conspired to cover it all up with Bathsheba. He was there. He was a part of it. 
He saw and witnessed the family behaviors then of David with his son Absalom who who revolted to try and take the kingdom and and other ones of David's sons who were this huge bloody family. He was there when David saw, or when when, when, uh, he was there when David at the end of his age in pride asked for a census which led to a, a horrific consequence where God was smiting, or was smiting, this is a good old King James word, was killing all these people, hundreds of thousands of people, and, and it stopped, at, he was there when, when it stopped at the threshing floor which would later become the location where the temple was built. He was there witnessing all these things, Asaph. He was there when the temple was built. He was there when Solomon came into power and he watched the bloody transition when Joab was murdered. He he saw the temple being built and dedicated with this amazing prayer where the Shekinah glory came down and filled the temple so that all the priests had to get out of the way. He witnessed all this. That Solomon came and in that moment in the dedication sacrificed 22,000 oxen and 120,000 sheep to dedicate this temple. He was there through the entire rise and fall of Solomon with his 700 some wives who then transitioned his heart from God to the false gods around. He was there even through the rise and fall of Jeroboam and Rehoboam. This is a man who witnessed a lot of things. Who witnessed the glory of the kingdom of Israel and the low of the kingdom of Israel. And he writes a lot. He writes a lot. He writes more than Jude, James, and Peter. In fact, he writes more than most of the minor prophets. He wrote Psalm 50 and he wrote Psalm 73 through 83. So what did Asaph have to say? Starts out in verse 1 of Psalm 73. He says, truly God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. This is him reflecting. He says, God is good. I know that. And he's good to Israel. He's he's To those who are pure in heart, verse 2, but as for me, my feet had almost stumbled. My steps had nearly slipped. Why? For I was envious of the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. For they have no pangs until death, their bodies are fat and sleek. They are not in trouble as others are. They are not stricken like the rest of mankind. Therefore, they wear pride like a necklace. Violence covers them as a garment. Their eyes swell out through the fatness. Their hearts overflow with follies. They scoff and speak with malice. Loftily, they threaten oppression. They set their mouths against the heavens. These are all things that Asaph has witnessed. He goes on. He says in verse 14, actually in verse 13, he says, All in vain have I kept my heart clean and I washed my hands in innocence. I tried to do good, I tried to be righteous and holy, but I'm seeing the wicked out there prospering and doing whatever they want and getting away with murder. For all the day long I have been stricken and rebuked every morning. My plight is suffering. 
while I'm trying to do good and they're succeeding. Verse 15 is a turning point. Remember, this is the head of worship. He says, if I had said I will speak thus, I would have betrayed the generation of the children. I can't tell the congregation this because I don't want them to be discouraged. I can't tell them the thoughts that are going through my mind because I don't want to lead them astray. Verse 16, but when I thought of how to understand this, it seemed to me a wearisome task. I couldn't comprehend. I didn't know. I don't know how many times the question gets asked, why does God allow bad things to happen to good people? We ask that question all the time. Why does God allow bad things to happen to good people? Why did God allow John to be thrown in prison after being the herald for Christ and then to have his head cut off in prison with no reward seemingly for his hard labors? He said, but when I thought of this, to understand this, it seemed to me a wearisome task until... Until I went into the sanctuary of God, then I discerned their end. I almost fell when I considered all that happened until I went into the sanctuary of God. There was a perspective renewed. Brothers and sisters, there's a reason why coming to church on a weekly basis is so vitally important for us because we have to have our perspective renewed in a day and a life where we walk outside and it seems like the wicked are prospering, where it seems like those who care nothing about the Word of God, who care nothing about truth, are seemingly prospering. We need to be at God's place. Why? To be reminded of a perspective. Because every time Asaph walked into the sanctuary, you know what he saw? He saw an altar stained with blood from the sacrifice of thousands upon thousands of animals. And it was a reminder that sin has its due cost. And we need to come into church on a regular basis to be reminded that God has come and has died as a sacrifice forever all time for us. It's the gospel. The gospel is this, that I don't need to envy what's going on outside. It's that I don't need to envy when the wicked seemingly prosper because I have Jesus Christ as my Redeemer. The gospel is this, that I deserve death because I have sinned against the holy God, that I have not fulfilled what He has called me to do. And we are told over and over again in Scripture that all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. All have sinned and, and violated God's law. And all, as a result, deserve death for their punishment and eternal condemnation. And Jesus came and He lived a perfect and holy life and He died for our sins that those who put their faith their trust, their hope, solely in Him and what He has done, receive His righteousness and can stand before a holy and just God. And we don't need to envy. It's a call to remembrance. It's a call, second, to recognize. It's a call to recognize that we should never put our hopes and trusts and dreams in anything that this world has to offer. I can't tell you how many times I hear about the next election. If so-and-so gets elected, we will be good. If so-and-so gets elected, we'll be so far off. There is no political ruler ever, ever, brothers and sisters, that will do what Jesus Christ will do when he comes to reign. And there is no political ruler that we can ever put our hope and trust in. 
I'm not saying that we shouldn't take full responsibility for our rights and our, and our responsibilities to participate in those things, but know that our hopes and our dreams are not in them. Never will be. They will always fail us. Our hopes and dreams are not to be in financial success. Your jobs, your careers, they will never bring satisfaction. I can't tell you how many times I've heard of and seen husbands waste away their families for the sake of career. It will not bring satisfaction. Nothing in this life, no temporal pleasures, they will all fail. Nothing will satisfy. Here is the story in John chapter 6 of the greatest human being that Jesus says is the greatest human being ever. What did this world give him? The loss of his head. It's a call to recognize that our hope is in the coming kingdom and not in this kingdom today. And third, it is a call to a relationship. Brothers and sisters, there is one who knows your plight. There is one that knows your weaknesses. There is one who knows your struggles. Can you imagine what John the Baptist must have felt like in that cold, dark prison in Machaerus? Imagine how lonely that would have been. Can you imagine what it must have been like for him? There is one who can empathize with you. Hebrews chapter 2 says, Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise took, partook of the same things that through death he might destroy the one who has power of death, that is the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery, that is our life, that we are subject to lifelong slavery to death, a fear of death to come because that is our end. For surely it is not angels he helps, but the offspring of Abraham, therefore he had to be made like his brothers in every respect so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. That's the gospel, the good news that Jesus came. He partook with us so that he could be an offering, a substitute in place of me. And listen to this verse. For because he himself suffered when tempted, he's able to help those are being tempted. Brothers and sisters, this story reminds me of an end. It reminds me that God is going to judge the world in sin. And praise Jesus that we have the gospel. And so I need to be in a place where I'm reminded of the gospel, the good news. This story is a call for me to recognize that my hopes and dreams should not be in this life. And I can't tell you how many times I've put my hopes and dreams. If I can just do this one thing, I'll be satisfied in life. If I can just acquire this money for this project, you know, my latest dream has been, uh, my wife laughs at me when I say this and she tells me to get off Craigslist, a camper, right? I'm not, a, I'm not a camper, brothers and sisters, but I think it'd be fun. It's not going to satisfy. My hopes and dreams are not in this world. 
And it's also a reminder of a relationship of one who can empathize with you, one who can comfort you, one who can walk with you. I don't know what struggles, what burdens you carry this morning in this place. But I know one who has carried them and who carries them to the cross. And when we start to look around and we say the wicked are prospering, why do they get away with that? Why do they get away with that? They don't. One day, they will face a just and holy God. And here's the beauty of why we gather. When you walk in here, you declare, I believe. And we believe that Jesus is our King. And we believe that Jesus is coming again and we are going to partake in a, what they call it, a dress rehearsal for a wedding. That one day Jesus is coming and He's coming to get His bride, the church. He's coming to celebrate with us in a great and incredible marriage feast, a supper with the Lamb. That's what we get. And while we're here on earth, we wait for that, we long for that, we say, man, I can't wait until that day when I get to have that marriage feast because in this world it appears that the wicked are winning, but then in that moment when Christ is on on His throne, we will know the reality and the truth that He is King and He will judge the world in righteousness and He will convict the world of its sin and, and, and we will look and stand before Him justified because of Christ in me. And and as I long for that, I look forward to that, we get to today. Dress rehearsal for that. So as Stephen comes up and the elders come forward to pass out the elements, I want us to think about that. I want us to think through the sorrows and the troubles, the burdens that we have in this life. And to know that there is one who has carried them to the cross. And as you partake, you think about the coming kingdom. And you let the joy swell up in your heart of a marriage supper that you will one day be a part of. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you. We thank you that Jesus Christ is our King. We thank you that in Him we find hope and the power of your resurrection. Father, we thank you that Jesus Christ died for our sins and as we partake even now in a declaration as believers, that we partake in a celebration and we look forward to the great feast. And Lord, we are told in Your Word that every time we partake of this, we do declare Your death, burial, and resurrection. And we declare it until You come again. We thank You. We praise You in Jesus' precious and holy name. Amen. Jesus, on the night He was betrayed, He took bread and He broke it. He gave it to His disciples and He said, Take, eat. This is my body broken for you. In the same way, he took the cup and he said, this is the new covenant, a new promise, a new blessing that I will come for you and we will celebrate for all eternity. If you are a believer here today, if you believe that Jesus died for your sins, that he was raised and that is your hope and trust and he has given you his righteousness, I welcome you and I plead with you to celebrate with me. But if you haven't put your hope in that, This isn't for you. 
This is for the family of God. This is for the church, His bride that He's coming to gather. But don't let today be a day where you say, well, I didn't partake. Let today be a day that you declare, I want to partake. And come, declare yourself to Jesus that you need Him and He will welcome you. And we have this incredible promise in 1 John chapter 3, Behold what manner of love the Father has bestowed on us, that today we should be called children of God. And so now we are. And you can join in celebration with me. So as they pass it out, we'll partake together when it's time to celebrate His coming.